everyone. I'm Dr. Yosefa Fogel-Rubel, and this is One-on-One Women Talk Torah, a series brought to you by Matan Women's Institute for Torah Study. Welcome back to Matan's One-on-One and Parsha podcast, where we discuss deep thematic points about the Parsha. If you would like to sponsor a podcast episode, please contact the Matan office or email me at podcast.matan.org.il. This Breshit series is titled Chosenness and Choices. The book of Breshit is propelled forward by God's chosen representatives, Adam, Noach, Avram, Yitzchak, Yaakov, but these messengers impact the world because of the choices they make, and it is a nexus between being chosen and the human choices that actualize this divine will in the world that we are exploring in these episodes. Parshat Miketz opens with Paro's twin dreams, which interestingly parallel Yosef's twin dreams. Thankfully, the chief copper remembers Yosef's dream interpreting talents, and he is called from prison and makes his monumentally important impression on Paro, both by interpreting his dream and offering unsolicited advice about how to prepare best for the years of famine ahead. It is a life-changing moment that catapults Yosef's life into a new and blessed direction. Never again will he be derailed from his train to greatness. He even names his son Menashe, which is explained as he who causes to forget the suffering of my parents' home. Yosef announces essentially that his life has turned a corner. And yet in the following scene, due to the years of famine, he comes face to face with his brothers. The past, it turns out, is harder to bury than Yosef has imagined. Yosef does not reveal himself to his brothers and speaks with them harshly. He offers them food in return for an imprisoned brother, Shimon, and a promise that they will return with Benjamin. Unbeknownst to them, he places food and money in their bags. He acts with an enigmatic combination of kindness and cruelty. The brothers later return with Benjamin, desperate for more provisions, and after inviting them to a regal meal, replete with abundant food and filling their bags with clothing and money, Yosef sets up the final goblet test, framing Benjamin as a thief. The Parsha ends with the brothers in great distress at the prospect of Benjamin receiving the death penalty. Today I am joined by returning guest Dr. Malka Simkovich, who is the Crown Ryan Chair of Jewish Studies and Director of the Catholic Jewish Studies Program at Catholic Theological Union in Chicago, and is a co-god fellow at the Shalom Harbin Institute of North America. She is a professor of Jewish history who focuses on Second Temple and Rabbinic Judaism. She has authored numerous articles and two books, The Making of Jewish Universalism from Exile to Alexandria, and Discovering Second Temple Literature, The Scriptures and Stories that Shaped Early Judaism. Letters from Home, The Creation of Diaspora and Jewish Jewish Antiquity is forthcoming this spring. Malka, it's a pleasure to have you on the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. So our topic for this series, as our listeners know, is the topic of uh, of chosenness. Now, what's significant uh, about that is that we really haven't discussed where Yosef fits into this uh, into this topic, because we have sort of the clear concept of chosenness when it comes to the earlier generations. And then we get to this family, which is significantly larger than the, all the other primary families that we've seen. Of course, there's multiple wives, but uh, we really are sort of trying to figure out what what is this looking like in this generation? So I'm curious if you could speak to that, that point. This episode, as we sort of plan with each other, is really going to focus a lot on the figure of Yosef, which is perfect because last week's episode, although it dealt with the early life of Yosef, was really focusing on his brothers, Yudan Reuven. So let's jump into Yosef for a little bit. Yeah, I think that that's a great question. And so often, Yosefa, when we in the 21st century have a question about something in Tanakh or something in the ancient world, um, 
it's because in those stories, there's also ambiguity and ambivalence that is being experienced by these characters. And certainly when we look at Yaakov and the question of who is going to inherit the Abrahamic covenant, it does not seem that Yaakov has the answer to this question. At the end of Parsha Vayishlach, we end on a cliffhanger. We have two lists of generations. Uh, we have the list of Yaakov's family and the list of his twin brother Esau's descendants. And what's interesting about these lists is that Esau's list is very, very, very long. It goes on for 43 psukim. And Yaakov's list is very short. It's five psukim. Yaakov does not know who is going to inherit this breed. But he does make some inferences. He assumes that the oldest child of his favorite wife, Rachel, is going to be the one who is entitled to this breed. So this is the question that Yaakov has. And what we find out as we meet Yosef is that Yaakov might not be right. In fact, we have a number of legitimate candidates who could all... Um, inherit this covenantal relationship. And what we know as readers and what Yaakov does not know is that we are no longer in the system where one single person is inheriting in a, a framework that rejects everybody else. That is no longer the system in which we are working. I mean, it's also hard to know because God doesn't tell that to Yaakov. I mean, he keeps promising, he gives him this promise that you will be the father of a great nation, but no one ever cues him in to say, okay, great nation, structure has begun. Do you know what I'm saying? Now, maybe he might have figured it out by the right. fact that he has so many children that all seem to be of equal standing, whereas the previous forefathers had more than two children. They just weren't all of equal standing or they were had in different sections of their portions of their life. But it again points to this difficulty where Yaakov constantly has to struggle to sort of figure things out in his own, where you kind of wish that it would have been a little bit more spoon fed, but it's it just leads to tremendous complication. Right. right. It absolutely does. And Yaakov absolutely thinks that he has to choose a single son. And, you know, it's not clear. He's looking at his older sons. These are strong, confident, powerful, impressive individuals. And as we see throughout Bereshit, they keep disappointing him over and over with Shechem, uh, the story of Shechem and Dina, and other stories as well. And Yaakov, as you say, is not informed about how to move forward. And so he's doing all these things, trying to figure out, trying to determine who is going to inherit um, this breed. Um, and so you have Yudah, who becomes the ancestor of kings. You have Levi, who's the ancestor of the Israelite priests. You have Binyamin, who's the ancestor of many leaders, like Shaul and Mordechai. Um, and actually, at the end of the story, you see that Yosef is merely, maybe not merely, but he's Mishnah Lamelech. He's the second in command to a foreign king. Yosef might not have the notable descendants that figures like Levi and Yudah have. And Yosef, in the end, lives and dies. Of course, he's buried in Eretz Yisrael. His, his bones are moved, but he's supposed to live outside the orbit of his family. He lives in Egypt and he paves the way, uh, in a sense, for the Israelites to succeed outside the land of Israel, outside of Canaan, where they are supposed to end up. Um, and I think what Yaakov does not quite understand is that Yosef is only one part of this larger system where everyone has a role to play as the family of Yaakov transitions into becoming the people of Israel. So Yosef is a key part of it, but he's not the only part of this transitional period. Right. I think what's also interesting is that, well, first I want to just only slightly challenge that and say that while we don't have individuals mm. that come from Yosef that we think of as exemplary, he does become the, he becomes sort of the, the main bulk of the Northern tribes, meaning a Ephraim is a very, very powerful mm. tribe. So 
in that sense, mm-hmm. Yosef does his tradition continues on very strong, but it's just that we're a very like mm-hmm. Judean focused we're very Judean focused because ultimately that's sort of what persisted. But so that's just, I would say about Ephraim specifically, Menashe is a little bit more mm. complex. And the other piece in terms of how you're correlating him with Yaakov is that, and this is a bit of a negative portrayal, but in some ways, Yosef actually, in terms of personality wise, he kind of brings a bit of of Yaakov's personality into the next generation. And if we think of, right, there are hmm. children that ever that we have and some of them are more similar to us and some of them are less similar. We tend to often have more friction with those that are more similar to us. But, but Yosef does take that sort of the trickiness of Yaakov. We, Yosef really employs that quite, quite phenomenally. Mm. Uh, and, and he, you know, with his brothers and, you know, he chooses to remain opaque until he's obviously reveals himself. But that element of that, that constantly follows Yaakov's life initially purposefully. And then after that, it seems not purposefully that trickiness, that, that ability to be with people, but not be totally upfront with them. Yosef becomes a bit of the inheritor of that on like a personality level. Now that's not something I think on a divine level or a spiritual level that we're looking to perpetuate even further. But I just think that it's interesting that while, as you said, he, he might miss the mark here because he thinks he has to choose one, but he doesn't really have to. There is something about Yosef that might, at least in the long run, remind Yaakov of himself. Does that make any sense? I mean, he's not there when he's oh, tricky, but, but I think that he might remind him of himself. I think that that's absolutely true. That's very compelling. There is this connection between Yaakov and Yosef. And what we see with Yosef in a really remarkable way, I think, is the evolution of his personality. Yeah. And, um, and you know, in a way, at the end of their lives, when they reunite in Egypt and Yaakov, <clears throat> this famous scene tells Paro his life, the years of his life have been long and bitter. Yosef's perspective is extremely accepting of all the pain and yeah. the agony, the loss, the absence. He seems to be very comforting, very nurturing to his brothers, to his father. And over and over after the reveal, he is bringing God and the notion of divine um, intervention into his life story in a way that does feel very accepting, very evolved. We don't find God in the foreground of his speech uh, when he's a young man. But uh, when Yosef is about to die, he comforts his brothers and he says, God will surely come to you. He will bring you up out of this land, back to the land that he swore to our forefathers, that's not merely bringing God into the story. That's also telling um, telling his brothers that they are going to share in the divine plan equally and they are going to all play roles in this developing nation. And so, and I think that that is the final message that we're left with as we close Bereshit and we begin Sefer Shemot. Yosef does come to an understanding, despite, I think, your correct, very compelling note, about the similarities between him and his father Yaakov. There's some wisdom that Yosef has <clears throat> at the end of his life that I think maybe Yaakov does not internalize in the same way. Oh, that's such a great point. And you know, it reminds me a little bit, ever since I I recorded an episode with Molly Brofsky and she mentioned uh, Jordan Peterson's uh, Bible classes, I've a little bit been hooked. <laughs> I walk around, I walk <laughs> really? around with my six month old strapped on me and I have like a Bluetooth in and huh. I'm listening to Jordan Peterson. Anyways, so he, I just want to huh. bring something in from there. 
because he speaks exactly to that point, and I love that you brought that up. And he says, I don't remember in what initial context he brings it in, but meaning you have a choice. Like life is really difficult for a lot of people, but ultimately you can be someone who accepts it with bitterness, or you can be somebody who mm. who creates a frame. And he, and of course, in his kind of way, he says, no one wants to be with the bitter people. Like no one wants to have them at their party, you know. And mm. and again, God forbid, mm. I'm not God forbid in putting those same categories on on Yaakov. But I think that that's a an amazing point. Meaning I never because we're always so perplexed by that by that interaction with Paro and you're kind of like why are you spilling your life that way to Paro and it wasn't really even his yeah. question and and but it's right it's such a powerful idea that question of how do you frame your life because as you said the frame that Yosef gives to his suffering is the main motif I think of Yosef as an adult right there's there's a lot of amazing mm-hmm. literature on this topic and and that theological frame which he he imposes himself God never appears to him it's not some you know divine vision that he was he was told that oh this is all for the best nope meaning he's the first person and ultimately that we'll, we'll talk about how he becomes a model for us, certainly in, in other literature. But that's a model for us, right? Is this idea that, you know, you bring in God wherever you can and you decide that, okay, that's how I'm choosing to frame my reality. And and Yaakov ends on, as you said, it's it's a it's a hard note, the the way that Yaakov ends his life. And mm. we get it, because his life is really, really, really difficult. And there's a lot of struggle. But we see people around us who are those people that despite the struggle, they manage to be I, I wouldn't, not like, they don't have to be cheery, but they managed to take it in a way that feels very holistic and accepting. It's a great point. I appreciate that. Yeah, thank you. And I think it's part of the reason why Yosef becomes so important to Jews who live outside the land of Israel in the Second Temple period. I mean, the Jews are absolutely enamored with Yosef. Uh, they identify with him, but he's a little bit more than what they can be. He's a little more attractive. He's a little more captivating. He's a little more evolved. Um, and he imbues his life outside the land of Israel with meaning that sort of surrenders to this idea that you're not fully in control. Now, that's not to say that you are not responsible for your actions, but that there is this, as you say, Yosefa, a deeper meaning, a deeper story that you're only a small part of. And that humility doesn't come to Yosef as a young man. It comes to him at the end of his life. And there's something really inspirational that Jews, especially outside the um, the land of Israel, really, really appreciated. Okay, so maybe maybe we'll, we'll move into that. Is that okay, Malka? That we'll move into sort of how what kind of figure Yosef becomes for in, in sort of the, you know, second temple literature that you are such a voice for. And I appreciate that. I, I guess I would also just want you to start just by explaining to our audience. Of course, they've listened to your other episodes on my podcast and other podcasts. So they know a lot about early second temple literature and late second. No, I'm, I'm being facetious, but I do just want you to frame it in terms of, how just i know that it's not really a brief question but how should we as a student look at these works do we look at them like a midrash do we look at them mm-hmm. like we do at uh i don't know early commentators that are obviously later than these you know rashi middle ages commentators and what kind of voice or authority do we look at these works that we're going to be talking about it's a huge question, Yosefa, and I think we really have to take it on a case-by-case, text-by-text basis. 
A lot of these texts are not part of our authoritative tradition technically. So you might have a novella produced in Alexandria in the late second temple in the, in the late second century BCE that retells the story of Yosef through the lens of his love of Osnat. Um, and there is such a story. It's called Joseph and Asenath. It's produced um, at this time in the Hellenistic era. This is, of course, not a text that is authoritative by any means in the Jewish tradition. But there are two things to note. One is that this was an extraordinarily popular story that Jews who uh, observed their ancestral laws and viewed themselves as pious, they loved this story and, um, and they circulated it and they transmitted it and they shared it. But the other thing is that even stories like Joseph and Asenath that are not cited by the rabbis, that are not considered part of our Midrashic tradition, there are very often little nuggets, little details embedded into these stories that then find their way into more authoritative collections like Bereshi Rabbah. And so I would say a few things. Throughout the Second Temple period, Jews are transmitting interpretations both orally and on the written page. And there is not a strong divide between what is considered outside the realm of authoritative or what later will become Midrashic tradition and what is squarely within it. There isn't a boundary, partly because information and traditions are being transmitted in different ways from family to family, from community to community. And so there isn't this sort of, well, that's in, that Midrash is in, but that tradition is out. Uh, you don't have uh, that kind of hard boundary in the Second Temple period. And you have many, many stories circulating and these stories, you might call them, as some scholars do, rewritten Bible. I think that's a very problematic phrase, but you'll okay. find it in scholarship on Second Temple Period. It's a problem because they're not trying to rewrite these texts. And they're not trying to produce Bible, but they are showing homage by engaging in a very intense, substantive way with questions that they're trying to answer. What I love about Tanakh, Yosefa, I mean, there are many things, but one of the things is that there's no pretense of trying to answer every question in Tanakh, right? And the biblical writers are not trying to say, uh, you know, this is, um, I know that sounds obnoxious, biblical writers. The Tanakh is not trying to give you on a platter, you know, every single piece of information so that you um, walk away with a very clear-cut understanding of what happened to the Avod and to their families. But it does draw you in. A great example is Esther. Why is God not mentioned in Esther? Why is there no reference to the people's practices, right? What will become halakha? Why is there no religious content? Well, you know, there are authors in the Second Temple period who try to answer that question by rewriting yeah. Esther and and putting God in throughout the story. Now, that's very nice. And on the surface, that answers a lot of really legitimate questions. But when you have a text like the Greek version of Esther, which has God everywhere, you're no longer deeply engaged. You're no longer enamored with the text. You no longer have a relationship with the text because you're not pulled into it. And the stories of Yosef, um, which are, by the way, so similar, yeah. you know, as, mm -hmm. as we know, to Esther, the stories of Yosef pull us in because there are so many questions. And very early on in the Second Temple period, as Jews are reading these scriptural texts, and they're also sharing them orally, they're pulled in by this enigmatic, fascinating uh, character that we don't know whether to identify with because he has this very developed personality and we can empathize with, but also isn't always totally likable. Yosef makes mistakes. Yeah. Yosef can be arrogant. Yosef pushes away. 
um, those in his family sometimes. And so we have a complex character. And as readers, we're drawn into that. We want to engage with it. We want to answer the questions that are generative in the story itself. And so very early on, um, Jews, wherever they live in the land of Israel, in Egypt, there are hundreds of thousands of Jews in Egypt in the Second Temple period. These are pious Jews. They're not assimilated into, into the Hellenistic world fully. And they're writing about Yosef. So Daniel and Yosef are extremely popular figures for interpreters in the late Second Temple period, because here you have figures who are completely loyal to their ancestral tradition. They're observing their laws. We find Daniel in, in the book of Daniel that's preserved in Tanakh. We find him facing Jerusalem, davening, praying in a regulated three times a day, right? He's, he's praying at set times and all these things. It almost sounds mm-hmm. rabbinic. Um, and so Daniel is totally devoted to the court where he serves, the foreign court, and he's beloved to that court, but he never compromises the integrity of his own beliefs. And so too with Yosef. So these figures become extremely important and inspirational to Jews who do not live in the land of Israel. And they're looking for a model from within their own scriptural tradition that legitimizes their lives, but also reminds them of where they are to be oriented. Because these Jews They could have moved to the land of Israel. They had the mobility. They make a choice, like me in Chicago, right? You you make a choice, but then you have to remind yourself of what your values are. Where are you oriented? Where are you facing? Are you facing Jerusalem? Um, Or are you facing Lake Michigan when I turn east? Uh, And so these Jews wanted to feel that connection to their tradition, to the land of Israel, and yet we don't have evidence that they picked up and they moved. So Back to Yosef, he's a very, very important figure for these Jews. Wow. So I I mean, I have a lot of questions, but I maybe will leave them for another time. Like, I'm curious if Mordechai and Esther become, they don't become models in the same in the same way, right, as Daniel and Yosef. And I can imagine why. Their story has a lot more difficulty, I think, than those do. And and uh, and also, I mean, there's probably a bunch a bunch of reasons. As you said, the book itself doesn't have God in it, so it's sort of, you have to, like, dig deeper than you do with Yosef and Daniel, who was sort of, this. there's more there that, that, makes, it, that makes it appealing. Uh, is that, would you agree with that analysis? Mm-hmm. I would agree with that. And I don't know if there's something else that we don't know, but it doesn't seem that the story of Esther was as popular both in the land of Israel and outside yeah. until the rabbinic period. Um, interestingly, the Dead Sea Scrolls, uh, which they were found on the it, northwestern right? corner, they don't yeah. have Esther. And also, Esther is not cited a lot in in uh, late Second Temple literature in general, I think for the reasons that you describe. But on the other hand, we do know that there were Jews. I don't know if it was every single Jew, but there were Jews celebrating Purim. And so they do need the text to understand why they're celebrating this holiday. And what's so interesting about there are multiple Greek versions of Esther where Greek speaking Jews are rewriting the book and inserting God. But the one that has these big, these six big additions that have prayers and very religious speeches and that actually was produced in Jerusalem for the Jews of Egypt. So it's a Judean text, I think, by somebody who said, you know what, I'm going to rewrite this 
story in a way in which I anticipate Alexandrian or Egyptian Jews would find to be appealing. So it's actually someone who's sort of cosplaying as an Egyptian Jew. It's like me thinking like, okay, what would an Israeli Jew really want to hear right now? Okay, I'm going to write this in Hebrew. I mean, my Hebrew's not as fluent as, you know, it could be, but I'm going to try to speak in the voice of an Israeli to appeal to them. That's what uh, that version of Grief Esther is doing. So things are not always what they seem. With that wonderful and succinct introduction, so we have Yosef, who if we could even just summarize before we jump into these, you know, two different uh, early and later Second Temple texts and what they have to say about Yosef, just within the Psukim, I mean, Yosef has Chen, the Psukim say that outright, right? He has this sort of charisma and ability to sort of wiggle his way into positions of uh, of success and power. He's clearly very talented. He's very intelligent. He has this dream reading capacity, which is a big debate among commentators, whether it's a prophetic ability or it's a, a high level of intellect. Uh, he also, of course, has the episode where he presents his moral his moral standing, the refusal of Potiphar's wife, which we'll get to. Uh, he's an economic leader also, which is really, really interesting. And, you know, we see that economic wit by Yaakov, again, that connection in the house of Lavan, but there, of course, it's it's not read, it's not taken in a way that is uh, is is uh, appreciated by, by Lavan. Uh, and he, I think he really does have a genuine love for his family and a longing for his family, at least his father and his brother Benjamin. And and even after all of the water has run deep, he takes takes real care of his family in those years in Egypt. He doesn't live near them, which is, I think, significant to say. They're not living in one big compound together, it seems. Uh, but But he really takes care of his family. So I feel like those are all things that we could really genuinely say just from the psukim themselves. So why don't we jump into some of the texts that you that you thought to bring to us today to sort of illuminate the figure of Yosef through the prism of these of these early Jews that were living in the diaspora and really saw Yosef as a as a real role model for them. I'd even say that today I think a stare over the years has become a wonderful role model for for women and she's become I think that story because of the massive shift that's happened for women and obviously Jewish and religious women in turn the story of Esther, I think, has has really, I would even, again, a parallel is that the story of Esther, we've used it, uh, Tanit Esther, as the day for Masur Vot Get, right? As a day for, for women who are who are not able to get a get. And that's a way of our, our contemporary reality, using that biblical frame to mean something very meaningful and to be inspiration for these women. And so I really feel like you're describing something very similar just, you know, thousands of years ago. Um, where they're using it as a prism for them and and their life. So why don't you bring us into into this this era, wherever wherever it feels good for you? Sure. So in the Second Temple period, as today, Jews and maybe all readers loved a good fortune reversal story. Any story Rags where you have an extraordinary reversal, exactly. Right, and you have this total reversal of fortune combined for these Jewish interpreters with the theme of divine providence. It was a very powerful story. In early Second Temple interpretations of the story, we find an emphasis on Yosef being tested. And he's tested primarily 
in this experience of being abandoned by his brothers and sold into slavery, having these en enigmatic dreams and somehow being, um, being released from jail. But in the Hellenistic period, we find a shift. So in the later Second Temple period, beginning in the second century BCE, we find a growing fascination with the affair incident, the, the incident with Potiphar's wife. And it is, uh, it's depicted in terms of a trial, a trial of the just. But I think what's going on here also has to do with the fact that it's a great combination of Hellenistic style intrigue, uh, where you have this very beautiful, this handsome, charismatic figure who's tempted by this beautiful woman. And so it has this, this Hellenistic kind of style to it. And yet, it's a very pietistic tale. And it's a tale that teaches us that um, divine providence is always there, even at the moment where, by all logic, it does not seem that God is watching over us. And so in the Hellenistic period, you find an emphasis on Yosef's beauty. And in that period, there was no distinction. I say this all the time on podcasts. There was no distinction in the ancient world between um, how one looked. There was no tension between how one looked and how one uh, was devoted or not devoted to God and to their ancestral tradition. And in fact, in the Hellenistic world, if you were to perfect your soul, part of that project is perfecting the body, right? Going to the gymnasium and becoming strong and healthy and fit. And so Yosef's beauty for many writers, uh, but especially for the early first century uh, philosopher Philo of Alexandria, Yosef's beauty is a sign that this is a special person. This is someone who has uh, uh, qualities that are going to uh, make him make him great. And in fact, Philo, I mean, there's so Wait, many different I just different want to interject accounts. for one second, yeah. which is that yeah, sure. I think that that is also reflected in the biblical text, meaning why does the Torah yes. go so far out in so many cases to say that someone was beautiful? I'm not at all saying that it's mm. a retrospective of the Hellenistic culture, but it's just like a child right. is born out of infertility is foreshadowing a very unique child. Someone who has external mm. beauty they're, it's being spoken about because they have an internal beauty. Now, of course, those two don't always go together. It's it's a nice twist of fortune right. when they do. But but I think that, that that's something that's reflected in our earliest sources. Otherwise, why, why tell us that they're beautiful? Uh, yes. Yes, I absolutely agree with that. And I think that uh, you're right. It's not invented by Hellenistic writers, but certainly in the Hellenistic period, the fact that uh, Joseph that Yosef has this, I'm just saying Joseph because I teach Catholics, <laughs> the fact that Yosef has this beauty um, is easily correlative with their yeah. conceptions of inner mm -hmm. perfection. And yeah, yeah, that's absolutely true in the case of uh, many stories in Tanakh. <clears throat> and I thought um, it would be interesting to say a little bit more about Philo of Alexandria because Philo was the first figure to produce an entire biography, an entire rewriting of Yosef's life story. So before Philo shows up, we do have interesting retellings of Yosef within broader retellings of Bereshit. So for example, we have the book of Jubilees, which is a rewriting of all of Sefer Bereshit and the beginning of Shemot. And in Jubilees, we have some interesting uh, nuggets, an interesting, very condensed retelling of Yosef, where we sort of skip over uh, the brothers uh, selling him, and it's framed as him choosing to leave his household. And so we have Yosef. We have the writings of a Jew named Artapanus. We don't know a lot about him be, because we don't have his own writings, but he's cited in a later church father named Eusebius. And Eusebius cites the Jew Artapanus who talks about Yosef, 
again, within this broader retelling of the patriarchal stories, and Archipanos admires Yosef as someone who contributes culturally to Hellenistic society by inventing measurements, which is fascinating. Um, and we have, as I already alluded to, this novella called Joseph and Aseneth, which was a story about how Osnat falls in love with Yosef. But Philo does something new, which is he writes a comprehensive biography of Yosef. And he clearly does this with a diasporan Jewish audience in mind who will be <clears throat> very inspired by someone like Yosef. And so Philo, who very often reads biblical stories through uh, allegorical meaning, rewrites Yosef's story and infuses it with this sort of higher allegorical meaning that you find in other Alexandrian philosophical, uh, philosophical sources. Um, and so for Philo, Yosef is this statesman, this very, um, this sort of ideal figure who any Greek would admire, um, but is always, again, always devoted to his ancestral uh, ancestral traditions. And so um, this, this figure uh, is extraordinarily important to Philo and presumably to his readers as well. I like what he says about the coat. Uh, he says in, in one of the sources that it is not without a particular and correct meaning that Joseph is said to have had a coat of many colors for a political constitution uh -huh. is a many colored and multiform thing admitting of an <laughs> infinite variety of changes in its general appearance and its affairs and its moving causes in the peculiar laws respecting strangers, etc. cetera. I mean, he looks at, at the code as, as being an allegory for for the right for the many facets of of his mm -hmm. life and his personality which is interesting by the way because mm. obviously i'm sure that major sheen that do but nothing comes to mind right now as i'm thinking about i mean we always just look at the code as a as a sign of of ill-fated love from yaakov but i think that's interesting how he speaks mm -hmm. about it but i think it's true and this idea that yosef has this multifaceted but really dual commitment to his ancestral law and to um, the court of uh, first Potiphar or the house of Potiphar and then the court of Paro is really at the foreground of Philo. Some of his allegorical readings can be a bit of a stretch, but the commitment to his ancestral um, ancestral laws really comes to the foreground in Philo's description of Yosef's rejection of Asia Potiphar. And this rejection scene, we see it in Josephus's description of Yosef as well. It's a fantastic scene because these Hellenistic Jewish writers really play up the tension almost as if they're staging it on a play. And uh, the way that Philo describes Asia Potiphar is just obsession. We also see it in Joseph and Asenath as well. Um, well, there it's with Osnat's love of Yosef. But I'll read to you a little bit of Philo's description of Aisha yeah, Potiphar. Uh, she said that, uh, Philo says, she was maddened by the beauty of the young man and being unable to restrain the violence of her frenzy and passion, addressed a proposal of illicit intercourse, but he resisted it vigorously and would not at all endure to approach her by reason of the orderly and temperate disposition implanted in him by nature and habit. And so he's almost like a stoic philosopher. He embodies moderation. He embodies reason. 
as a Greek or as a Roman living the Hellenistic world, you could read this and say, wow, he is uh, an embodiment of all these philosophical values that were admired by the Stoic school of thought. But as a Jew, you would say, no, this comes from our own tradition. And in fact, that's where Philo ends up going. He gives her this speech. And again, we see kind of a parallel speech in Josephus, uh, who writes at the end of the first century, but this is what he says. He says, what are you forcing me to? We, the descendants of the Hebrews, are guided by special customs and laws of our own. And now he almost gets like hilariously specific in a way that isn't so convincing that this is exactly what Yosef said. But in Philo's recounting, Yosef explains to her, and again, you know, Yosef obviously lives in ancient Egypt, but Philo is speaking within this Roman Hellenistic context Yosef says, in Philo's mind, in other nations, the youths are permitted after they are 14 years of age to use concubines and prostitutes, etc. But among us, a harlot is not even allowed to live. But death is appointed as a punishment for anyone who adopts such a way of life. And now he's speaking, of course, from uh, thinking of biblical passages. Therefore, before our lawful marriage, we know nothing of any connection with any other woman. He goes on and on. I, having kept myself pure to this day, will not begin now to transgress the law by adultery, which is the greatest of all sins. I mean, on and on. It is a very extensive, very Hellenized speech. Um, and because Philo understood that this is the scene in which his readers would delight, even more so than the uh, trial of slavery, it's the scene of the affair that was so captivating to Jewish readers in Alexandria or in Egypt uh, in the Hellenistic I wonder world. also if this was something that was realistic for them, meaning is this is this a trial that they actually dealt with, right? I, I, I don't know, meaning, or maybe it was just that, like all things, topics of sexuality are a bit more alluring than other topics. I'm, I'm I mean, not that we necessarily know how much of this was, was realistic for them. It's also interesting, by the way, because I really never thought about it like this, but we we have a good sense that you know a woman who's a married woman is not supposed to be slept with by somebody else but it's not like we had a clear prohibition at this point again that's a general question of were the forefathers keeping torah etc i'm sure there was a, a general code of conduct here but it's a point i never thought about like you almost have to explain <coughs> it and well if it wasn't necessarily outright prohibited then it's obviously a, a display of yosef's exemplary exemplary moral character. I sort of never thought about it that way. Um, but yeah, in our, in our sort of, I think very often in the more like rabbinic perspective, um, we sort of just see it in the in the flow of the stories. It's the reason why he gets sent back to jail. We don't necessarily look at that story itself as being like the pinnacle who Yosef was. There's something all, also a little bit embarrassing about it. You kind of feel like, why didn't he just, why, why did he let himself be alone with her? Like, I almost feel like I look at the story mm. sometimes and, and judge Yosef, Dafka, because why would you, mm. why would you just get out of the situation? Do you know what I'm saying? And interestingly, they mm -hmm. use that as sort of the pinnacle of, of who, of his personality. Yeah, and I think it absolutely is because inevitably there was going to be um, integration and even assimilation in Philo's environment. Now, on the one hand, I wouldn't go so far as to say all the Jews in Egypt were assimilated. As I said, many of them observed their ancestral laws. But Philo does talk about Jews in Alexandria and beyond who are 
far too assimilated into the broader world. And those Jews do end up, I think, abandoning their traditions, uh, their biblical stories. And so I do think that this is a kind of a lesson to those readers. You see the great Yosef, who was in a position just like you are today, was able to resist those temptations. And you need to look to him as a model. Now, Yosef, in many uh, in many Jewish works in the late Second Temple period, is not just a model of, I would say, sexual chastity, but he becomes the exemplar of all ethical perfection, which I think is fascinating. And so you have a collection of uh, books. This is called The Testaments of the Twelve Patriarchs. It sounds very Christian, and that is because this is how Christians refer to this collection. It was preserved by the church, but written by mm -hmm. Jews, in the, again, probably in the first century BCE, first century CE. It's a collection of 12 speeches. Each speech is given by a son of Yaakov on his deathbed to his children about how to act. And so these are like last will and testaments. And so we have these speeches, and there are many good, compelling reasons as to why we're nearly certain that they were written by Jews. In fact, we have an Aramaic version of the Testament of Naphtali found in Qumran, in the Dead Sea Scrolls, and also a scrap of uh, the Testament of Levi. And so we think that there is an Aramaic original, at least to some of these speeches. Uh, and, and that's all I can say about that, because again, by the time you get to the rabbinic period, not only do the rabbis not cite these texts, but it's highly doubtful that they even knew of them. But I still think that they're valuable to get a sense of where Jews who were speaking Greek or speaking Aramaic outside the land of Israel, what, where were their minds? And actually, Naphtali, of course, and Levi could have been written in the land of Israel. But these texts were very, very popular in many communities. And the one theme in all of these speeches is Yosef. The one speech is, uh, the one theme is Yosef is the person, not me. Levi says, and God says, and other uh, brothers, but you have to look to Yosef. So in the Testament of God, for example, he says, my children, each of you should love each other. Um, hold on, I'm looking for, oh, um, drive hatred out of your hearts, love one another in deed and word and inward thoughts. For when I stood before my father, I would speak peaceably about Yosef, but when I went out, the spirit of hatred darkened my mind and aroused my soul to kill him. And then he says, drive hatred away from your souls and love one another in uprightness of heart. And it keeps coming up in the Testament of Binyamin. Binyamin says, um, my children love the Lord God of heaven and earth. Keep his commandments. Pattern your life after the good and pious man, Yosef. Fear the Lord and love your neighbor. So over and over, Yosef is this figure that everyone's supposed to admire. Um, and uh, the Testament of Yosef, too, sort of positions him as the lead brother, which is kind of totally. fascinating. Again, it's also just interesting because in the text itself, Yosef is a very complex figure. As you said, he starts off, we, we don't necessarily, we kind of, to a certain degree, side with the brothers. He's, he's difficult. He annoys them uh, and throughout his time in Egypt mm -hmm. it's 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 just interesting how you know they really took a, a perspective that was so positive on Yosef because the biblical text is I think extremely extremely open uh, and and ambiguous I don't right. think that this biblical text errs on the side of 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 loving I think that it really shows you as you said like the real development of Yosef and does not does not mince any details on this. There's no glorification of him. It really, I think, is is really, really open about the complexities. So it's just so interesting that they 
they shifted this so, so greatly over time. And I think, right. And I think that that's exactly the takeaway. I mean, I work in late second temple literature and sometimes this literature annoys me because as I mentioned at the beginning of our conversation, when you look, it's very didactic and it's trying to solve every problem, anticipating what questions you're going to have, which I empathize with. But when you read the Tanakh, it is so open uh, about, and here's a figure that I could understand. um, I, 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 if I read Yosef as a perfect figure who did sort of, in many ways, inter- uh, inherit the mantle of the confidential relationship, that would make perfect sense. And I don't know that people would question it. Uh, but the fact is, is that the Tanakh, and with many other figures too, some of the most important figures in our history, I mean, Moshe is a great example, and Bamidbar Yud Aleph, when Moshe is arguing with God, we have, and, and Avraham, of course. We have figures who are very multifaceted, have rich internal lives, you know, argue with their spouses, are sometimes wrong, and yet, um, you know, are, are beloved, are beloved to God, are beloved to us. And, and that's a very, very powerful message. And like you're saying, Yosefa, when we look at these texts that were produced in the Hellenistic period, I don't know that you get this very richly complex figure of Yosef. It's a little bit more one dimensional. Uh, what's interesting, and I don't know if we have time to talk about it, is that the Midrashic tradition recovers some of this complexity. And so if you look at Breshi Rabbah, and not just with Yosef, but with other Abraham, with other uh, patriarchal figures as well, there is a little bit more, um, there is a little bit more ambiguity when it comes to the choices that the Avot and their descendants made. And so you have the very famous Midrash uh, that Rashi cites about how Yosef in his youth drove his brothers a little crazy yeah. with mm-hmm. um, with his sort of self-perception as being superior and this deep conviction, this confidence that he has been set apart from them. I don't know, and I could be wrong, but I don't know of a late Second Temple source that uh, brings that tradition to the fore. Most of these sources elide. They sort of eclipse that early period in Yosef's life, and they go straight to his um, his sort of impressive feats, the successes that he had in Egypt. So the fact that the Midrash does recover this complexity, I think, speaks to the rabbi's comfort in saying, look, you know, these were the greatest... Um, the greatest of people that deserve our admiration. And they were very human and they had temptations just like we do. Um, and, and I think that that's a very, very powerful message that the rabbis really deeply appreciated. I don't know if Philo appreciated it or if Artapanos appreciated it in the same way. I guess I would say it. And I think we will wind down our conversation, which is that the debate of how do we look at our patriarchs and matriarchs, which is a debate that's, you know, gone on forever. I think that well, you're pointing to the fact that the Midrash can bring ideas that are not necessarily, that are reflective of the nuance, but I think also just the multi-vocality of the Midrash, meaning bringing so many opinions at once is also very different than the text that you're bringing us, which yes. is this, again, very didactic sort of um, one or maybe one and a half dimensional kind of thing. Uh, and I think that it's, I, I would like to think that this there's a certain spirit of Yahadut, which of course its kernel begins in the Tanakh, 
and I think Chazal develop it in an unbelievable way, which is the kernel of, of multivocality, <coughs> of multiple voices, and also mm. the kernel of not trying to um, make straight edges out of out of things that are not meant right. to be that way. And I think that that and so in this sort of classic debate of you know, do we look at our biblical figures as flawed? Are we okay with that? Rev Hirsch versus others and all those, you know, classic sources on the topic. I think that just the spirit of what we have is something that clearly hints to the fact, sorry, not as a hint, that clearly paints our figures as as complex and that there are other moments of, of falls and failures. And depending on the period of history that we're living in, are the prism of exegesis had a harder or easier time sort of digesting that. And I think the Chazal did a did a really unbelievable job. I mean, they had criticism of of our biblical figures that we would never even envision. And and then you have other periods of time that are influenced in this case, let's say by Hellenistic literature or in other times influenced by Christian literature. I can't really make a big generalization, but I'll just say that they do tend to go in the more whitewashing. Of course, we have hints of that in the Midrash. It doesn't just show, you know, it shows up in all different mm-hmm. texts. But, mm-hmm. but I think that it's, I would like to think that it's importing external ideas and that there's an internal kernel of Judaism that is really open and nuanced, but I might be reading my own desires into the text. And I might be reading my own desires into the text by agreeing with you. (laughs) (laughs) Because I I do think that the rabbis are dialogical in a way that is totally revolutionary and uh, foreign to Greek writers and then to later Christian writers who are saying, you know, let's just get to the one sole cohesive truth. And anything that sort of seems to be to run parallel to this narrative or to undercut it, that is going to be rejected as heresy. Um, and the rabbis, of course, they're talking about these figures as if they're historical, but it's much more than that as well. Uh, they're looking for resonance and and in this very dialogical way that I agree with you, Yosef, I don't think you find it in the work of their predecessors. Yeah. Malka, I really want to thank you for this conversation. I feel like it brought in both our perspective on the, the shot of the story of Yosef and and added on these other dimensions and uh, that, you know, in other generations. And I think that it's it's always an important practice to become aware of ourselves as readers. And even if we don't go with or like or, you know, identify with some of the, the Second Temple style, I think that it's it's really important because it makes us aware of our biases and it makes us aware of our trends of commentary. And I think that that's always a really valuable exercise because ultimately it's the prism through which we we import the meaning. So I really appreciate that. It was such a pleasure to talk to you, Yosefa. And I'm thinking about you and everybody in Israel and all of us here in the diaspora are really, our hearts are with you. Thank you. I hope you've enjoyed this conversation as much as I did. I'm Dr. Yosefa Fogel-Rubel, and this is One-on-One Women Talk Torah, a series brought to you by Matan Women's Institute for Torah Study. Please do one-on-one and women's Torah learning a small favor by sharing this podcast with family and friends so that we can reach new listeners. You can stream and download these episodes on Spotify, iTunes, Google Podcasts, SoundCloud, and Matan's website. Don't forget to leave us a five-star review in the comments. Please send us any feedback at podcast at matan.org.il. That's podcast at matan.org.il. Thanks for listening, everyone.